Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and in this episode, we're going to hit two big topics. In the second half of the episode, I talk with Maya King from the New York Times, who is their reporter who covers politics in the South. She's been in South Carolina covering the uh, South Carolina, both Democratic and Republican primaries. And so she's going to give us insight on how those two races are shaping up, but also uh, how black voters generally throughout the South are viewing both of their likely options for the general election. She was in her car while I talked to her, so the audio is less crisp than normal, but she has some uh, really important insights into what's happening in the state. So you could stick around for that. But in the meantime, we start with a conversation with Dr. Drew Kolar from the New Yorker magazine. He's a staff writer there where he covers topics in medicine and health, and he's also a practicing physician. We talk about a bunch of different sort of hot topics within medicine, including Ozempic and that whole class of weight loss drugs, which is revolutionizing weight loss around the country. And then we also talk about other innovations such as full body MRI scans, which are uh, being made available commercially and are prompting a lot of questions about efficiency and ethics within medicine. And so with that, let's jump in. Dr. Kalar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, of course, we have to start with Ozempic because that's the hottest topic, I think, in medicine right now. And you wrote this piece basically asking the question of whether the development of Ozempic and the class of drugs that it's a part of could be one of the most important developments in medicine in recent times. As a starting point, you're a physician. What is this drug and where did it come from? Sure. And so Ozempic, you know, probably has come onto people's radars over the past year or two, but a version of this drug has been around for nearly two decades now. And so this class of medications is called GLP-1 drugs because they activate a hormone called GLP-1, which does a number of things in the body. So it slows down food transit uh, through your gut. It suppresses your appetite. Uh, it creates a faster sense of fullness uh, and it lowers your blood sugar. And so these types of medi medications were initially developed as diabetes medicines. And they ultimately, um, uh, it can be found that they actually cause pretty profound weight loss. And so uh, Ozempic and its sister drug, Wagovi, uh, somewhere around 15% of your weight loss, uh, weight loss for people um, who, who have overweight or obesity. Uh, there are newer drugs called Monjaro and Zepbound, which are from Eli Lilly, that create closer to 20% uh, weight loss in people. And even newer drugs, um, which are not just activating GLP-1 or not just activating a second hormone called GIP, which is what Manjaro and uh, Zepbound do, but they also potentially will activate a third hormone in the gut called glucagon. And that is estimated, uh, at least in clinical trials, to produce 25% weight loss. So that's on the order of uh, bariatric surgery. So really profound reductions in weight. Now, you said, you kind of described the mechanism at work here. Uh, but I've alternately heard people talk about the mystery around how this is affecting weight loss. Uh, help me unpack this or the combination of that, because you, I think you, you described perhaps some of what could be going on here. But what don't we know about these drugs right now? So it's a great question because um, you know we know we have a handle on the mechanism in a broad sense, but actually we don't know um, some of the details. And so, um, as I mentioned, these drugs have been in development for a long time. And initially, um, you know, Novo Nordisk, which produces uh, Ozempic, had another drug, which was not called semaglutide, which is Ozempic, but liraglutide, which was Victoza. And that drug was released in 2010, and you had to take it uh, an injection once a day instead of once a week, which is Ozempic. 
And it produced pretty small amounts of weight loss. So maybe 3%, maybe 5%. You know, people were um, happy that when they were getting their diabetes treated, maybe they'd lose a few pounds. But it was nothing like we see with Ozempic. And so they tinkered with the medication further and they came out with this formulation that lasts in your body for a whole week. So you only have to take the injection once a week. And it's not clear why that produces an enormous amount of weight loss as compared to Victoza, the earlier drug, which produces just a few pounds. And so there are some mysteries that we're still unpacking. Um, but for the most part, we know that this is acting through a mechanism, uh, through a GLP-1 mechanism. And GLP-1 has receptors not just in the gut, which is where uh, people obviously, uh, you know, probably think about uh, for first, but it also has uh, receptors in the liver, it has receptors in the, uh, in the muscles, and it has receptors in the brain. And so it's really having a kind of systemic effect uh, when you take the medication. And this sort of craze, you know, I'll, I'll tell you from my experience, I think I first heard about this class of drugs from Peter Atiyah's podcast, I think like two years ago, where he started talking about what he was seeing in his clinical practice. And, uh, and you know, he is not a high, hyperbolic guy. You probably spent a lot of time looking at his stuff, I would imagine. He's careful to pour cold water on things like metformin, for example, or resveratrol, like some of the stuff that people like David Sinclair have been more bullish on. But he seemed re- like it, it, almost out of character, enthusiastic about this class of drugs. That was the beginning for me of just now. And then now I see it like you see it when you don't see it, right? Like there are yeah. people who lose weight, like even famous people. Elon Musk, I think, has maybe copped up to using it. I can't remember. But like in a weird way, like you grapple with this a little bit in your piece, like there's been an explosion of the use of this drug, but there's also been a weird stigma attached to it. And I'm so curious as to where this comes from. Is it because of the price? Like the fact that it's so expensive that it's almost caricatured as like a Hollywood thing? Because losing weight, isn't it something we all want people to do? And if this actually works, then great. Like, you know, it's one theory is the money that people spend on it. The other is that it's not the hard way. Like, so it's like, you're not restricting your calories and going to the gym. So it somehow seems cheap, you know? I don't know. What's your theory as to what's going on here? Yeah, I think the first thing to point out is that there's a number of reasons that people are really excited in the medical profession, uh, in healthcare more generally about these drugs is that, you know, we've been trying to address obesity, um, the obesity epidemic, which it really has been a creation over the past 40 or 50 years. We didn't have these levels of obesity, you know, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Really in the 70s and 80s, we start to see uh, really rapid weight gain among many, many people in the country. And, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but there's also been a, a lot of activity trying to uh, help people lose weight, to find a healthier body weight, and they have largely been ineffective. And so, you know, people have tried diet and exercise, uh, various programs, um, you know, taxing certain types of food, taking vending machines out of schools, um, all these things, you know, have not really resulted in durable weight loss for people. And so here comes long drugs that actually seem to produce that type of weight loss. And it's not just weight loss is the other thing I should, I should mention. First of all, they're diabetes drugs, so they're quite effective for diabetes. But when people take it, there's increasing evidence that people might have lower risk of stroke, lower risk of heart attack, slower progression of chronic kidney disease, reversal of dangerous uh, fat deposition in the liver that can cause cirrhosis. And so it's not just a cosmetic thing here that we're talking about. It's real uh, health benefits. So I think that is uh, the first thing I want to point out. 
the other thing now, when it comes to stigma, I think it's 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 complicated because the first thing I'll say is that BMI is a crude measure, and so people at a high BMI, not everyone will have diabetes or um, you know metabolic dysfunction that leads to heart attacks and strokes and COPD and all these things. And by the same token, some people at healthy BMIs, or what we consider healthy BMIs, do have higher risk for diabetes and heart disease and so on. So first of all, it's a crude measure. And so people, I think, take offense to just saying, just because you're at a high BMI, that's unhealthy. Now, it is true that it is strongly correlated with a number of medical conditions. And so we can't get around that fact. But I think when people see people who are generally at a healthy body weight, you know, paying out of pocket, reducing the supply for people who might actually benefit from these drugs uh, more significantly, that's when they take issue with this idea that um, it is being used in a more cosmetic way as opposed to uh, a way that is actually improving people's uh, health outcomes. And is there any truth to this? You know, I think I haven't looked at this literature recently, but this sense that at least a year ago, the conversation was once you're on this, you can't really get off of it because you, the weight will come back with a vengeance. And in some cases, you can gain more than you lost. So like, what does the data tell us about that? Yeah, so that's still generally true. And so um, people who are on these medications and come off generally gain back most, if not all, the weight that they initially lost. I don't know if they put on more weight than, than they did when they, uh, before they started taking it, but they certainly gained back most of the weight. Now, in clinical trials, it seems that most people tolerate these medications pretty well. And so people do experience things like nausea, constipation, diarrhea, mostly GI side effects uh, related to taking the medications. But actually, that's probably on the order of five, maybe 10% of people, and most people can tolerate it. There is some real-world evidence that is kind of conflicting with this, which is um, there's been some early studies that suggest that actually most people who uh, go on the drug aren't taking it a year later. And that's from some pharmacy uh, data. And it's not clear why that's the case. Is it because of the price? Is it because of the side effects? Is it because people don't want to inject themselves you know, once a week with these medications? We don't know. Uh, but one concern that that raises is that maybe in clinical trials, people tolerate these medications, and it might be a different story in the real world. I don't think we have enough data to say definitively about that. But, um, but I think your general point is a good one, which is um, you have to continue taking these medications for them to work. Yeah, where are we with price right now? Because my understanding is they're very expensive, but I have had conversations with people who seem to get around this. So like I talked to my father who runs a weight loss practice in Alabama, and he uh, he's a physician. He, he splits his time between New York and Alabama. And I was talking to him about this the other day, and he was like, I can get it for X price. I forgot the price was, right? And I was like, how, mm-hmm. how do you get a drug for a certain price? You're a physician. Like, what's, what, what's going on here? And I know there are different classes of drugs, too. Yeah. So there's a number of uh, different drugs. I mean, the, the main ones right now are from Novo Nordisk, which is Ozempic and Wagovi. And then Munjaro and Zepbound um, are from Eli Lilly. And so those are the two main companies. I think the first thing to point out, I mean, there's a lot of other drugs in development, but those are, those are the ones on the market. The first thing to point out is that the list price for Ozempic, for instance, is about $1,000 a month. So it's, it's pretty expensive. The list price, that's $12,000 a year for, for most people. And compare that to what it is in the United Kingdom, $97 a month. Uh, what it is just over the border in Canada, $147 a month. So part of this is just our healthcare system, our inability to negotiate drug prices, um, is creating this this kind of issue. Now, not everyone will pay that $1,000. Um, so some people, uh, for some people, insurance might cover part of that. Many insurers uh, negotiate with the drug companies, and so they get what are called rebates. 
It's kind of a very murky area that we don't know a ton about, kind of who gets how much uh, of a rebate is possible that, that your father is getting some type of rebate. But, but the thought is that if you are some type of institution, if you're an insurer, if you're a health system, you're probably not paying $1,000 a month for a Zempic, but you're probably paying um, something pretty significant. One other thing that I think is important to point out is that Medicare, which covers, you know, obviously most older Americans, everyone over 65, is currently prohibited from covering weight loss medications for the purpose of weight loss. So you can cover them for diabetes if you have diabetes, but you cannot cover them. They won't pay for it just for weight loss. And if it were to cover it just for weight loss, it would be a colossal budgetary problem. So there's some estimates that suggest if everyone with um, obesity who's over the age of 65 got on one of these drugs, Medicare would pay more for just these drugs than it does for all the other drugs combined uh, that it currently covers. So, so just, to, just to kind of put that in perspective, these are incredibly expensive drugs. And the fact that you have to take them basically indefinitely creates a big budget problem. So what, where are we, and this is probably a hard question to answer in terms of the combination of competition from Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk with each other and potentially other drugs in development combined with the massive increase in demand is, I hesitate to ask this because I know it's the healthcare system and supply demand never works properly in the healthcare system, but, and neither does competition. But is there any sense that the competition plus the increased demand could drive down the price of this drug? Or I think absolutely. I think absolutely. So right now, there's kind of two major companies, but there are many other companies that are looking into similar medications. And so, you know, if we have three or four drugs today, I think by the end of, you know, by the end of a decade, we will have at least a, a number more. And and while you're right, the incentives are not always so clear cut. Uh, you don't always get substantial reductions in price if new competitors enter the market, particularly in, in the United States. I do think that it will drive down the price and make these medications more widely available. Even if the price is half or a third or a quarter of what it is today, I think it will still cause a lot of issues just because if you think about the number of people that could benefit from these medications. So in the United States, 70% of people are considered overweight. 40% of people are considered uh, obese uh, among adults. And so, um, you know, just do the math. And even if the price of these medications is substantially lower because of competition, uh, the overall budget impact um, could still be enormous. You know, you talked a little bit about this from the correlation perspective, right, of BMI or body fat or whatever. If even half of this sort of initial data around both weight loss, but also things like alcohol substance use disorder and some of these other potential benefits, is there a sense that maybe it's more expensive in the short term? Like, like let's pretend the price goes down. Like, is there a certain point when the lines on the graph meet and it's actually in the whole system's interest to get as many people as possible on these drugs? I think it's certainly possible. I mean, I think it's in our interest to get on the drugs um, if people uh, want them and can tolerate them and they're effective for them because there are health benefits that accrue to people, um, both in terms of psychological benefits. A lot of people struggle, um, you know, with mental health issues if they um, are not happy with the way they look but also um, very tangible uh, physical health benefits. And so I think from that perspective, um, it is good to make sure that everyone who needs these medications uh, is able to take them. Whether or not the math works out or you end up saving money, uh, I think that's a very complicated question. So, um, you know, if people uh, end up, uh, you may not need as many hip replacements, let's say, or knee replacements because of arthritis. Maybe there's uh, improvements in the number of heart attacks. Um, but people living longer uh, and living longer yeah. on Medicare uh, generally is not a way to save money. And so I, I've seen some studies. 
I think uh, in the past I may be misquoting them, but you know, if everyone stops smoking, um, that's not going to necessarily decrease the healthcare expenditures of the United States. It's a good thing. Um, we should want people to stop smoking. But to think about it as we'll save a bunch of money, that's more complicated because people live another five or 10 years and that is time during which they accrue other healthcare costs, right? Right. Yeah. And I think this is that combined with a lot of other problems is why we don't have like probably good incentives in the system right now, right? I think also when it comes to insurance companies, I was thinking about that. I was talking to a insurance, uh, healthcare company the other day that works with self-insured companies and Medicaid providers to drive down metabolic disorders uh, and other sort of common drivers of, of long-term health issues. And they pocket the sort of difference between the cost, like some percentage of the difference between the cost of the system. And the thing that they deal with a lot when it comes to insurance companies, especially the major insur insurance companies, is that they're often not keeping their clients for long enough to justify any long-term thinking. So even if it drives down costs in the long term, it's not making budgetary sense for them to be super generous with what they're covering, um, which feels like a problem. Such an important point, and not just you know not just a problem for Ozempic coverage, obviously, just more yeah. generally. You know, if you're uh, an insurer that covers someone and does a really good job keeping them healthy from the ages of you know 45 to 65, and then they age on to Medicare, you're not really accruing any of that ROI, right? right? You've just made right. the upfront investment. Which is why, you know, the fragmented nature of our healthcare system is really problematic because the same thing is true with Medicaid, right? So people are churning on Medicaid, off Medicaid, you know, they made their income level fluctuates, they end up on private insurance and the ACA exchanges and they come back into the Medicaid system. Maybe they have some other uh, forms of insurance. And so um, because uh, the, the costs and the benefits are spread uh, in such a strange way and distributed in, in our system, uh, very seldomly can insurers say, look, I'm going to make these really important preventive healthcare investments and I'm going to recoup those costs, uh, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line. And these are mega companies, right? So like that two years ago when Atia was talking about uh, Ozempic, I bought Novo Nordisk stock and it's my best performing stock good, by far. And I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I have like Magnificent Seven, like all these types, and Novo Nordisk is just killing it. But there's like, this is, I'm not asking you for stock advice, but there's a part of me in the back of my head where I'm like, well, okay, like they're a monopoly of sorts, semi-monopoly, certainly over the, the, the word Ozempic, right? They're almost like the Uber of the sort of this, this world and kind of own the number. There does seem to be some competition coming down the line here. Uh, and, and I think you wrote in your article that I forget where Novo Nordisk is in some Scandinavian country, I think. Denmark. Yeah, Denmark. It, like, it's like associated with some massive percentage of the GDP increase of this country? Basically, all of the recent uh, economic growth <laughs> in Denmark is, is due to this one company. And they're thinking about, I think, breaking out Ozempic, or at least the pharmaceutical uh, sector, from the rest of their statistics, because basically it doesn't give an accurate picture of the rest of the economy. I mean, it's, it's worth basically, you know, um, half a trillion dollars now, uh, the company. And at least at one point, it was the most valuable uh, publicly listed company in all of Europe. Uh, and so this has just been massively um, profitable. Um, part of it is the price of the drug. And, but I think the bigger issue is that there are very few medical conditions that affect 70, you know, between 40 and 70% of a population. Um, and so just you know, doing the P times Q math there, it, it ends up being an enormous uh, amount of money.
Well, okay, let's do a 180 and talk about your other piece that really caught my attention recently, which is you and I both walked through the doors of a place called Prenova, actually the same spot. So I, I went to- Is that right, New York? Yeah, I went up to the, the one in Midtown. And uh, you wrote a piece about this craze, uh, which is um, full body MRI uh, scans on the private sector. Taking a step back, what is an MRI and what has it traditionally been used for within our medical system? Yeah, so um, you know, MRI is it stands for magnetic resonance imaging, and it's basically a non-radiation based scan that has become very important in medical practice over the past few decades. So if you think about X-rays, everyone knows what an X-ray is. You think about a CT scan, which is basically a three-dimensional X-ray. It does um, create ionizing radiation, and gives, but it gives you a good picture. Basically, MRIs use magnets to uh, understand what's going on inside the body. You know, we've been using these for a few decades and they get better and better in terms of their quality, in terms of what you can see in someone's body. And they're usually used when you have a medical problem and people want to understand what's going on inside inside your body. What these companies have done, you know, Pranuvo and Ezra, um, are trying to argue that um, we should do, we should use this as screening tools. So basically, uh, once a year, you can get a full body MRI head to toe. Um, and it'll show you any abnormalities in your body. Uh, and at least their argument is that um, this is a way to be proactive about your healthcare. You catch things early, and it's well worth uh, the cost, which is often around twenty five hundred dollars. There's a number of issues with that um, uh, that we can get into, but but that's the broad idea. Yeah, and I think people listening to be like, well, what could the issues be? I think you and I both are. We had very similar experiences, which I think illustrate the 50-50-ness of this for a lot of people. And I also think that there's a different calculus for the individual in the system, right? Which is, I think most individuals are like, I, I say this all the time, it's like, I'm a soccer mom for my health just because I don't, maybe because I grew up with a, in a family of health professionals and I know mm -hmm. how quick these interactions are with your physicians and the medical system. And if you don't advocate for yourself, often you can get lost, right? Uh, and I think that's in the back of a lot of people's health and it's the highest stake possible conversation you can have, right? And so I think a lot of people always wonder, like you see Chadwick Boseman and you see all these people and you're like, well, do I need a colonoscopy earlier than people think? Or you have that friend of a friend who discovered they had pancreatic cancer and you're just, in the back of your head, you're just constantly thinking, is there some kind of cancer or something lurking in my system that I didn't know about? And I think a lot of people want to know. It's just peace of mind. You're paying for peace of mind and you're paying for, early detection. And I think both of you and I went to the same spot, got the same scan, and both discovered something that didn't really give us anything definitive. So in my case, it was something on my pancreas, which I freaked out about at first, but then they're like, I forgot what the technical term was, but they were like, it's nothing to worry about yet. It mm -hmm. wound up, I took it to one medical and it's like a node or something. I don't know what you'd call it, but it, it, I took it to one medical and then they took it, they referred me to a specialist and like specialist, this is like our healthcare system. I go to the specialist who, first of all, and you capture this in your piece, owning up to having a Prenovo scan is like the medical equivalent to like, I don't know what, but it's like, it's not a good look. Uh, the people don't, my dad gave me a talking to about it, who's a physician. The guy, the specialist was like, ah, another one of these. And I, my interaction with him was not like great, but what it wound up doing was he looks at my scan and he's like, all right, um, I think it was a gastroenterologist. And he was like, Nothing to worry about yet, but you come back in a year and we'll see if anything's happened. Now it's covered in my insurance. 
So it's like, this is both the bad because the people who are for this uh, or against this are like, it's wasting resources, insurance, yada, yada, yada. For me, I'm like, I don't spend any money on my job. I spend spending money on my private insurance for decades and have never been to the emergency room, knock on wood, never had a major surgery. And I'm like, well, okay, hopefully like, now I'm actually getting something out of the system where I'm like, I get a scan on my pancreas. If this, if this is the worst form of cancer, it's what took Steve Jobs, it's what you know people can die from like relatively quickly. But at the same time, what you paint in your piece, and, and you had a similar issue, like not a pancreatic issue, I think it might've been, I forgot prostate, what it was. Yeah. Prostate, yeah. But okay, I'll pause there because it's a long story, but basically to be like, this is exactly illustrates the, the pros and the cons. You know? It does. And you know, to your first point, I think it's very intuitive why people would want more information and want to catch things early. Like I get that. And I, and I think, you know, we in the medical profession, I think are um, sometimes too dismissive of that idea. And so, you know, I want to be open. I went to the story wanting to be open to the idea that maybe this, this could be helpful. And look, I covered someone in the story, a patient who ended up having a cancer that was found at exactly the right time and may, uh, may have saved this person's life. And so that happens. I don't know if that happens one in 10,000, one in a hundred thousand, one in a million, but, but it happens. What is challenging is that there's all these other costs that are incurred when you uh, get a scan like this. And I don't just mean financial cost. There is the financial cost. Uh, maybe you say, look, I'm, I have disposable income. I'll do it. But often there's a cascade of care that occurs afterwards. Um, you got some follow-up testing. I need a dedicated prostate MRI now. I need a blood test. I need all this stuff for something that's ambiguous. And maybe it's nothing. It's probably nothing. But look, now that I know about it, I got I to gotta figure it out, right? So there's a cost. But there's also the cost um, in terms of uh, anxiety or the cognitive load. You know, you and I were healthy people before we went into these scans, and now we are patients. And uh, probably... Yeah, the I idea suspect, of just knowledge that there's something on my pancreas this actually exactly. freaks me out. Absolutely and I have the same out. thing. I have the same thing. And we're in a good position because there's this cognitive load, but there's also, um, you know, in your case, in my case, maybe we don't need biopsies, but many people will get a biopsy because of it. That biopsy could cause an infection. That biopsy could cause bleeding. In the case of prostate, it can cause erectile dysfunction. It can cause, you know, incontinence. So there's, that's not costless. And then the scans are so sensitive, meaning they pick up so many abnormalities that there's a lot of false positives. So you see something and it's like a little blob and you can't tell if that's like cancer, if that's a tumor, if that's a cyst, if that's a fibrous tissue, we can't tell. And then the final thing I'll raise, just this idea of overdiagnosis. So a lot of things that even if it is a true positive, it might not actually hurt you. You know, many men die with prostate cancer, not of prostate cancer. You know, there's a lot of cancers, thyroid cancer, a number of other cancers that often are not lethal, that grow very slowly, um, but that once you know about them, you tend to get them treated. And so there's this question of, does this also lead to downstream overdiagnosis? Now, now that's a lot, and there's a lot of uh, issues that I kind of explore in the piece. But I just, I want people who go into this, you know, to go in with their eyes open that, look, there is this small possibility that it will help you, but there's all these other things that could happen. And then from the policy perspective or public health perspective, it's, it's kind of a no brainer. I mean, there's no evidence that this is, this is going to help people on a population wide scale. I'm talking more about someone who has some disposable income and has curiosity around this, um, you know, whether, whether or not they want to go ahead and do this. Yeah. And, and, and remind our audience, what is the price right now for these types of tech, like scans? So they, they offered uh, several different products. Um, the, the kind of state-of-the-art one that, that both Pranuva and Ezra offer is around $2,500. And you can also get 
you know, at least at Ezra, uh, which is another one of these companies, a, you know, five-year membership for like $7,000 or something like this. They have other types of scans that only look at your torso or, you know, look at certain parts of your body. And that might be, you know, $1,300, $1,500. But generally, they're in the range of $1,500 to $2,500. And it seems like this is part of a, a larger trend of technologies like I, I this is like the common conversation like you and I were talking about a, a common friend we have before we started recording and you know amongst these people CEOs of companies and stuff I'm always hearing about oh I did a heart scan and I did a, the grail cancer screening and I did this or that and there are these email threads that I'm a part of of like Silicon Valley people and all that and everybody like it, it's not just investors thinking about investing in companies it's actually it seems to be what people are obsessed about right now for obvious reasons. Uh, as you look at this sort of world, this is what you cover. And, and specifically what I mean is like the scan world, right? Like, how do you stack these things up right now? What, what are the things that, you're, as you're looking ahead, beyond Prenovo pre and, and these, like, what else is out there that's caught your attention? You're right. So there's this big movement around for direct consumer healthcare um, and also personalized healthcare. And a lot of that, I think, is really good. I mean, I think... The idea that we want to take control of our health, we want a sense of control, uh, people are caring about their um, health and well-being, they want to be around for their children, their grandchildren in the healthiest possible way, all, all good stuff. But now I think we need to go one step further and think about, you know, at least in, in medicine, and we want to understand what is the evidence for this thing. And without good evidence, it's, it's basically, you're telling a story, you're spinning a story that um, this in theory might work. You know, uh, my friend had something that got caught. So, you know, it's, it's good for you. You should try it out too. So, you know, what I want to see basically is kind of rigorous empirical analysis of things like aura rings, of things like continuous glucose monitors, of MRI scans, cold plunges, whatever, whatever people are doing these days. If you can produce evidence that shows that this seems to help people in a really tangible way, then yes, of course, I think we should, we should support that. What I worry about is that often... Um, the, the kind of narrative around these things and the use of them uh, ends up uh, outstripping the actual evidence behind them. Uh, and if it's a, you know, if it's a no cost intervention or it doesn't cost you anything to, to jump in, you know, cold lake once a day, you know, go ahead and do it. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, it, but if it's something that um, uh, has a real cost to you or to the system or um, is, is dangerous in some way, then I think we owe it to people to have a certain level of evidence before we recommend it. Yeah, the aura ring is a good example, and I, I can't remember who I heard talk about this recently, where they were saying that the, you talked about anxiety related to the MRI scan, that the anxiety related to the sleep data actually is something you need to take into account, because certain people, I can't remember where I heard this, it's like people's perception of their recovery and sleep, like if you have whoop or aura, and it tells you you had a bad night's sleep, it dramatically affects how you perform that day. The studies I, I, I seem to remember suggest that even if your sleep was good or bad, if you just tell people one thing or the other, it has a dramatic effect on how they they perform that day. Have you done anything in this world? I imagine this is like the kind of thing that's uh, up yeah. here. I mean, I, I believe it. Um, you know, I think the the type of, it's, I guess, a version of a placebo effect in, in a different way. But, but this idea that we can be kind of cognitively manipulated, um, e even if the hard data says something else, I think is something that, that's very believable to me. You know, I, I think this is something that everyone has to decide for themselves. I mean, for some people, I think an aura ring, um, you know, doesn't cause anxiety or, um, you know, they want to know and it's helpful and maybe they modulate their day in some way based on their sleep quality. For, for other people, I think it does cause these issues where, um, you know, I, oh, I thought I slept well, but I guess I, I guess I didn't or, you know, <laughs> or 
or maybe I didn't feel like I stopped. Well, this is telling me I did, and then you know I should be able to do this. Um, and you know, I, I guess I want to know um, what what is the kind of end goal here? If it's to be as you know vibrant and productive um, as you can be, and these things seem to help you personally do that, then then of course you know I, I'm in favor of it. But I certainly don't think it's for everyone. And in in a way, I feel like well being can be boiled down to a few very boring things. And people need to uh, complicate them so that, um, you know, they can sell a product or make money, you know? And what are those? Let me see if I can guess those. Yeah, exercise, yeah. eating healthy, which is obviously like a, a holy war, right? But like, what, what, what would you on the nutrition side of things? Like exercise, it seems like strength and cardiorespiratory, like a balance of strength and cardiorespiratory fitness is, is, is the ideal. On the, on the nutrition side of things, what, what do we know at this point? Like, what does it mean to eat? Well, the nutrition science is complicated in part because a lot of the studies are observational uh, and it's hard to collect kind of long-term data in a randomized trial of some sort. Um, but we generally know things like the Mediterranean diet are, are good for you. The most important thing I would say was stay away from processed or ultra-processed foods. You know, I think Michael Pollan um, said it best in like seven words where it's like eat real food, mostly plants, not too much, something like that. And that's Basically, I think processed sugars. I think we're pretty clear that processed sugars are bad. Processed sugars, exactly. So I think you know, exercise, cardiovascular, as you said, and strength. I think um, you know, eating whole foods as much as you can. I think getting enough sleep, maintaining um, some connection with your friends, staying away from toxic habits. Basically, don't drink too much and and don't smoke. Um, You know, basically, these are the types of things that I think we need to do. Everyone kind of knows this, um, but implementing that can be hard, particularly in the environment that we we live in, right? We have sedentary jobs, we have a toxic food environment, we're increasingly isolated because of social media and other um, other kind of factors. So it's not that, um, I think the advice is simple, but applying it to your life is actually quite hard. Last topic for you before I let you go is, you know, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, and I have spent a lot of time thinking and and looking at the medical profession in the United States. And you're a physician. I mean, you've got what I call like the sort of a tool go on seat, which is like one of the most prized seats in in all medicine, which is you write for the New Yorker uh, and you practice medicine. Um, So you're, you're doing it right. And you're you're the person who I think has the most responsibility, no pressure, to communicate to the world what has happened to the medical profession in the United States. And from what I gather, just talking to my dad, who actually loves practicing medicine, um, but has been caught up in the system, and he's a uh, an internist who's run urgent care centers, and he's done all sorts of stuff. He's been in emergency rooms, he's been a primary care physician, et cetera. By and large, the way he describes the medical profession is, as somebody who's kind of at the end of his career, is that it has become a middle management job in ultra bureaucracy in a way that is soul sucking. Um, and it's also coming at a time when healthcare costs are, you know, skyrocketing and doctors are getting a lot of the blame. Like people think, oh, doctors overpaid, but actually so much of the money being spent in the healthcare system isn't going anywhere near the physicians. Unless those physicians happen to be CEOs of hospital corporations or uh, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. Um, this is a loaded question, but like, what do you, and, and it was also projected, I think the, it was the AAMC or somebody projected, uh, you know, 100 plus thousand do- doctor shortage at some point 10 years from now or 20, 15 years from now. What's your assessment of the, the profession right now uh, in the United States? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge, huge uh, issue and there's so many different angles to it. You know, I'll say the following, you know, 
that physician burnout rates, clinician burnout rates were already increasing in the decade before um, the COVID-19 pandemic, right? So, and a lot of that has to do with, as your father said, um, this idea of not having joy in the practice of medicine anymore because you're being distanced from your patient. Part of that is, you know, things like prior authorization or um, feeling like you have to see a million patients in a day just to make ends meet or filling out a bunch of forms the administrative burden is, is enormous. Part of it is increasing corporization of medicine. You know, a lot of private equity groups are now buying up physician practices. You know, what does that do to the ethos of what it means to practice medicine? You know, I think it all comes down to this idea of, you know, what most people go into medicine to do is to spend time with patients, to have difficult uh, or promising conversations with them, um, to walk people through um, what is often a very challenging part of their life. And the more distance that you create through administrative burden, through insurer interventions, through corporization, through, um, you know, even electronic health records have taken us away from patients uh, many times, um, the less satisfaction people derive from it. I think there's some hope on the horizon. You know, there's, there's, there's a real recognition that these are uh, issues not just for physicians and the workforce, but also for patients. I mean, obviously, patient care suffers when, when the people providing it are unhappy and dissatisfied. There's some hope that things like artificial intelligence will reduce some uh, administrative burdens, some of the kind of electronic communication, some of the prior authorizations that could help. So I think there's hope on the horizon. Um, but as you say, right now we're in a position where um, there, it, it is pretty dire and, and we need to think really hard about how we're going to fix this issue. Well, doctor, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is illuminating and I look forward to whatever the next uh, sort of area of medicine um, you decide to dive into is, I mean, there's just so much uh, going on right now. It's such a hot, hot, hot period of time for medicine. In many ways, like, you know, we could be negative about a lot of these things, but in a a way, like, you know, I was talking to, I think, I can't remember if it was Bethany McLean or somebody the other day we were talking about on this podcast about there's this sort of myth out there that we don't cure diseases anymore. But actually, I think we do. Like, we do a really good job of developing cutting edge medicine I think the question is equity often and getting it in front of the right people, but also balancing interests like this pre-novo situation, right? Like how do you balance the need for more or the desire for more information with the sort of sort of data drowning that I think some people can induce into the system and even into their own lives, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's an exciting time. Um, and I, I, we can always talk about what's wrong with the system, but as you say, um, there's been tremendous advances over the past, you know, half century, century. Um, they continue today. There's a lot to to be optimistic about. I think we need to figure out how to mitigate the unintended consequences of some of those advances because every new technology, every new medication does uh, create some of those issues. And, and then the last thing is we need to make sure that everyone benefits. As you said, I mean, equity is, is a huge issue and we want to make sure that everyone can live kind of the healthiest and most fulfilling life uh, that they can. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This was great. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Really glad to be here. Well, Maya, you have been reporting uh, from South Carolina and about South Carolina for a while. In in November, you wrote this piece about uh, Black voters shifting to Trump. Uh, And then you recently, uh, yesterday, you posted an article about uh, Biden repaying his debt to South Carolina. You write about how Biden owes a lot of his presidency to South Carolina because of his, you know, a turnaround of sorts that happened in the state in the primary last time around. 
What are you seeing on the ground right now when it comes to black voters throughout the South? Like you live in in a swing state in Georgia and you're reporting on a state that's so important to Biden historically. What ground has he had to make up? I have been here in South Carolina for about uh, 10 days following Democrats as they get their voters ready, particularly black and rural voters ready for the primary here on Saturday, February 3rd. And I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks that Democrats face here right now is making the argument for voting for President Biden in an election that he's largely uncontested in. And so it's required Democrats now to talk about what this president has accomplished for them. And I think the challenge is twofold because party leaders in a state like South Carolina that does have such a large Black population have had to talk about the policies that specifically have helped Black communities. And there are quite a few on student loan debt and rural infrastructure, uh, funding to historically Black colleges. But also in that message, I think, is an acknowledgement of some dips in enthusiasm from Black voters. And so that's also part of what the party is trying to do here, is make up for that dip in enthusiasm and also find a message that resonates with the voters here so that they can take it to other parts of the country and gin up enthusiasm with Black voters in places like, you know, Atlanta or Detroit or Philadelphia, these, these cities that have large Black populations and states Biden really needs to win. And this is the, you know, the first time that under a new primary calendar, now obviously it matters much less this time around, but, you know, no matter what happens this election, in all likelihood, there will be a, a pretty robust primary next time around. You mind just reminding uh, our audience how we got here uh, and how South Carolina has moved to the front of the line in the Democratic primary? Yes. Um... This story really starts in 2020, when President Biden was running in the Democratic primary four years ago. This time four years ago, he wasn't really doing that well. He didn't finish finish strong in Iowa, actually skipped making an appearance in New Hampshire, and came straight to South Carolina with his campaign kind of on its last legs. And it was here that after an endorsement from the Democratic congressman here in South Carolina, a longtime friend of President Biden's, Jim Clyburn, endorsed uh, Biden, then the floodgates opened and Black voters here seeing Biden as a trusted candidate, one who was endorsed by Clyburn, but also the most pragmatic, the one who many voters saw as the best chance of defeating then President Trump. Biden won in South Carolina overwhelmingly and took that momentum across the rest of the country. And then, of course, six months later, he was the party's nominee, as we've written and reported, my colleagues and I at the Times, extensively at this point. Now, after President Biden was elected, he made it a point pretty early in his tenure to reorder the primary calendar and put South Carolina first. And it was a recognition of the role that Black voters here played in helping him win the nomination. And also, he and his his allies have said a chance to let Black voters be the first in the country, the first in the party, to select who they want uh, for president. 
And it seems like looking back to the last election that there seems to be a, a bit of a, like, I wouldn't, tension might be too strong of a word, but that the base of Black voters in the party is not always looking for the same thing that sort of white progressives are looking for. Like, for instance, like the sort of base voter for, say, a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren is not always fully aligned with the base voter in South Carolina. And that's partially perhaps what is to explain why Biden is even president today. Am I right about that? And if I am, like, what what do you think the difference is either like either substantively or uh, values wise that that separate these sort of main coalitions within the Democratic Party? Well, I think if you're running for a national office as a Democrat, you need black voters. I mean, they are the most loyal constituency and vote in the largest numbers for Democratic candidates. They're just a must win, I think, for any Democrat running for president, whether you're progressive, moderate, what have you. I think of Black voters as a very pragmatic voting group, even though they are not a monolith and anyone you talk to will let you know Black voters are not a monolith. They have many different motivations and policy priorities. However, 90% of most Black American voters have supported Democrats uh, over multiple presidential cycles now. And what you'll find is Black voters who view Democrats of the two parties as the party that will allow them to thrive, at least that will give them that will give them the best shot at that. And I think, again, you just see a lot of pragmatism in Black voters and who they back as a as a block nationally. That's why Biden has enjoyed so much support from Black voters over the years in large part, because in 2020, people saw him as the best shot of defeating President Trump and really the, the person who would then champion a lot of the policies that they cared the most about. But more importantly, getting through the primary and through the general election, I think, Many black voters looked around and said, this is who this is the person who can actually we can actually put in the White House because they looked at also white moderate voters who black voters have a real knowledge of, too, and said, this is the man that we think will actually appeal to the broadest coalition. And so you wrote in November about how Biden potentially is losing support among black voters and, you know, we'll stipulate that losing support is not the same as like losing the majority of support, right? This is a question in many ways, a few percentage points here and there could be existential for Democrats. We can talk about what's happened since you wrote that piece, but just, you know, bringing us back to November, what were you seeing from Black voters back in November that was driving a wedge between them and Biden? Or like, is, was there something that Trump was doing to pull them in his direction? I think it's a little bit of both. So in November, the Times commissioned some polling of key battleground states and important Democratic constituencies. And we got some really, I don't know if it's shocking or startling is the word, but, you know, pretty significant results. And what we found with Black voters was a real shift, a very marked shift away from Democrats and a real decrease in their support for President Biden. And then we went back 
and actually called a number of these voters. And again, it was a number of different explanations, but um, some of the trends that we heard in talking to these folks was there were all of these big campaign promises that President Biden, then candidate Biden, made to Black voters and Black communities specifically. And I think you have to remember, this was in 2020 when the real calamity of COVID was taking place and it had killed so many people and laid bare all of these inequities in policymaking. And Biden and Harris really were on the campaign trail promising, one, to get America out of COVID and two, to build on those gains to really create more act, more equity in these communities of color. I think a lot of Black voters felt like that that just wasn't really delivered on fully when they look at how expensive housing is now, when they look at um, student loan debt and how and how much they still owe, despite this administration's promise to uh, forgive student loans in some some way. When you look at just the general price of things in the economy and a lot of misinformation coming from Republicans about what former President Trump was able to deliver for Black voters, a big message coming from him and his allies was the economy was better and also that Black voters, Black-owned businesses, Black American communities did much better uh, under former President Trump than they have under President Biden, which isn't entirely true. But all of these things, I think, contributed to a general feeling of um, pessimism among Black voters towards Biden. And that was really borne out in the polling that we found, which showed that 22% of Black voters were interested in, in voting for a Republican. And no Republican presidential candidate has gotten more than 12% support from Black voters. So you can see the, the real problem um, that that spells out for Democrats and for Biden but, you know, that was November. And I think the party Democrats are are really trying to figure out how to get over this this real hump. But we certainly did find some really startling um, results there. And it really just showed, again, how pessimistic Democrats were feeling. And, such, and it was so pronounced that it would cause them to divert from a trend that's been established in Black politics now for decades or Black voting behavior now for decades. And to what extent, if any, was uh, the Israel-Hamas conflict in any way showing up in the conversations that you had with people? Well, it's showing up now more, I would say. Here we are roughly four months into this conflict and these images of death and destruction out of Gaza are on the news. They're on news feeds. They're showing up really in everyday conversations, and that's across races and and political ideologies. But I spoke with a number of Black community leaders and a lot of Black faith leaders who said, this is now really becoming a problem for Biden because Black faith voters who, of the Black voter coalition, are really, truly the most loyal and the most willing to organize on behalf of Democrats are looking at what's happening in Gaza and really upset, really disturbed, and then looking at President Biden's sort of full embrace of Israel and funding of Israel's war and feeling very, frankly, turned off um, by Biden because of his involvement here. And so we're now, you know, we're talking at the beginning of February. You alluded to this a little bit, like there's a recognition in Biden land that they have a problem 
have you seen anything tangible uh, from them? Like, you know, obviously he's spending a lot of time in South Carolina and although there is no primary or not a lot of time, but he's, he's been down there and he's making a case to voters, even though he's obviously a shoe in for the primary, the new calendar isn't going to be relevant for who's going to win the democratic primary, but perhaps it gives him an, a, it nudges him in front of a community that he needs to engage with. Have you seen anything interesting about how he's been engaging over the past few weeks that tells you about how he's going to handle uh, this sort of gap between his past performance and where he's polling right now with that community? Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, we know that South Carolina is not quite uh, friendly territory for Democrats in general elections. President Trump won South Carolina by, I believe, 12 points in 2020 and is expected to match or build on those gains in 2024 if he is indeed the Republican nominee. But any Republican will almost certainly win this state. So for Biden to be doing what he's doing here, and that is spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, hiring senior advisors to the campaign, visiting the state multiple times. He was here twice, and the second of those visits was actually an overnight stay. The vice president will have been here three times by the time the primary comes around. And a number, I mean, several high-profile Democratic figures have spent days in the state. All of that organizing specifically to boost the Biden brand here in South Carolina and to talk directly to Black voters here and test a message to them. At the same time, the campaign is spending millions of dollars on ad campaigns that are directly targeted to Black communities. So the message is there and the campaign is really trying to show that they care and that they're showing up in these places because they really want to send a message to Black voters that they value their vote, they're willing to fight for it, and that they have a message uh, that would re- that would resonate with a broad spectrum of Black voters, not just in South Carolina, not just older, not just faith-based, but again, across the country, across ages and genders. And really, I think the extent of the problem is going to require this kind of effort of repeatedly showing up, spending the money, and getting a message together. And so, you know, the, obviously the other primary uh, that looms large and perhaps is maybe more interesting because there's actually, you know, two people vying it out is Trump versus Haley in South Carolina. So obviously she was governor, uh, but she's down right now in every national poll by a significant amount. And even in her own home state of South Carolina, the Washington Post Monmouth poll that came out yesterday or earlier today had a um, Trump 58, Haley 32. There's obviously like this, this state can cut two ways, right? One is it's one of the more conservative states, even for the Republican primary. Traditionally, it's a graveyard for more moderate candidates like John McCain, historically, who've kind of flamed out in this state. But on the other hand, this is Haley's home state. And this is probably her next great shot. And it's a state where I think independents can vote, although it doesn't have quite the sort of crossover history that a place like New Hampshire has. Do you have any sense of where this is trending? Like, is it basically like what the polls are saying is probably what's going to happen later this month, or is is any or or any one of these two candidates picking up steam? Well, I try not to look at polls for signs of momentum among candidates, just because they can be hard to read, and you really just have to to look and talk to people to understand where things are headed. And in doing so, I found that here in South Carolina, this is indeed former President Trump's race to lose. He has a pretty overwhelming lead over 
the former governor, Nikki Haley, which is significant because this is Haley's home state. She has run for office and won here. She does have a lot of homegrown goodwill, but Trump simply has more. He has more endorsements. He has very influential grassroots groups willing to work for him here in the state. And the same people who may have supported Nikki Haley in a wider Republican primary when it looked like the former president would have a lot more competition are now, you know, quietly acknowledging it's going to be really hard for her here. And so I, I do think, you know, she has a chance, but it's a very thin one. It's good that you point out that South Carolina's primary is open. So there is the the chance, too, that a sliver of Democrats who would like to try to make things harder for former President Trump could decide not to vote on Saturday and wait until February 24th and vote in the Republican primary for Haley. Or, you know, that that, that is a that is an option. However, you hear a lot of Democrats here saying, please don't do that. Do not help her. And doing so would probably backfire anyway. So it's kind of a complicated situation. Haley will be here in South Carolina after Nevada's primary on February 8th. It will be sort of two weeks of open runway for her to campaign and try to make up some of this ground. But Trump will be here too and will be rallying and and pulling together his supporters as well. So it's hard. He really has had a he has had real dominance over this primary, largely from the beginning. And so Haley has a, a pretty significant war chest to spend, you know, from the Coke Network and others. Are you seeing any evidence of of how that money is being spent? Like, what are the ads showing? How is this manifesting on the ground, if at all, uh, for the voters and for people, just the casual observer in, in South Carolina? Well, a lot of the money's going towards door knocking. And so there's definitely a message here for Republicans who would like to have a candidate with a better chance of defeating Biden in November. And yes, the Koch network is large and vast. And so they're going to continue to hit voters everywhere with a message, a pro-Haley message. And I think every other commercial that you see on TV here in South Carolina right now is a Haley commercial. So people are, are, are definitely getting it. It's just now turning that message into votes, which is the hardest part, getting people to not only go out and, and cast a ballot in an election that already seems kind of baked in, but also to do so for someone other than the person who seems like the overwhelming front runner. Right. What I found interesting is there was a theory that the best time for her to drop out would have been before South Carolina because this would be an embarrassing defeat for her given it's her home state. But now she seems in it. And I'm trying to game out, like let's say she doesn't win South Carolina. There's a part of me that thinks that she's in this for the long haul because otherwise the sort of rational thing to do would have been to drop out before this state so that she doesn't have this narrative that she lost her state. What do you think? Like, what What's your sense of what she and the people around her view as their strategy moving forward short of winning, right? Like like she, I think she and a lot of the people who support her will probably acknowledge, I'm not publicly, but probably know that their odds of winning are not 
strong. Like, do you think this is like a delegate game? You know, get as many delegates as you possibly can and hope that something happens with Trump, like a, a, a verdict or something that would pull him out of the game? Well, that right there is the reason why so many people ran for president in the Republican primary in the first place. They thought that there was a real chance that something would happen to Trump, that either he would get convicted or he would get sick or something would happen that was really pronounced and violent and would change the minds of Republican primary voters. And that was a big bet that just hasn't panned out. And that's what Haley is struggling with now. And my colleagues have very, very smartly pointed this out in their coverage. Haley is the only candidate who offers an alternative right now to the Trump-Biden rematch that nobody really wants. And I think that's part of the reason why she's in it for the long haul, because there is some argument to be made that, you know, there has to be some other option, like, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and we we don't know um, if that's really something that Republican primary voters are are hungry for, but something that her campaign points out is in Iowa and in New Hampshire, yes, Trump won, but upwards of 40 and 50% of Republican primary voters did vote for someone else. So they look at that as evidence of there being, you know, some sort of a lane for people who just don't want to see Trump be the Republican Party's nominee and would be willing to support someone else. As far as her strategy, when we started out here getting into the early state primaries, Haley was saying that she had to win New Hampshire and carry that momentum to a win in South Carolina. Obviously, she didn't win New Hampshire. Her chances of winning South Carolina look thin. So it feels like we're kind of on plan C, which is take this through Super Tuesday, where you have way more states and way more opportunities to win. And that is what Haley's campaign has said they plan to do. They feel like they have a message for Republicans in places like Virginia and North Carolina that will make her competitive and, you know, possibly make this race more competitive against Trump. I don't know, but we'll see. It's all, it has so much to do with how you frame it, right? Is Trump an incumbent or not, right? If you, if you treat him as an incumbent, what Haley is doing is remarkable because, you know, imagine if Biden were, you know, had a competitor who was drawing 30 something percent of the votes or 40 plus percent of the vote in certain states, that would be shocking. But if you treat it like a open primary, this is like a, a butt kicking, right? So it's like, what do you, what do you, what do we view this as, right? Like if this were, you know, maybe like the closest example that one could probably think about, although it's a, it's a, not a perfect comparison was, was Gore versus Bradley in 2000. So it's like, it's, it, it all depends on how you frame it. Right. And I imagine, you know, the locker room talk inside of Haley headquarters is like, wait, we're doing better against an incumbent than anybody ever has. And they're probably treating him as like an incumbent. That's probably what they're telling the donors. And we'll see. For all intents and purposes, when you think about his name recognition, his party apparatus, his donor base, like Trump is running as an incumbent. He's an incumbent with 91 felony charges and a mounting amount of legal fees and a really bad track record of endorsements in Republican primary races. But he is still the candidate that the base of voters is clamoring for because they remember him and he does have a record to run on. Well, Maya, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Uh, stay safe out there driving around South Carolina. And thank you for your reporting. We really appreciate it. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Those five-star ratings really matter to us. And remember, we don't really ask you for, we don't run any advertising at this moment or ask you for anything other than your kind words on the internet. Uh, and you can leave a voicemail, 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye.